Hey, this is the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. Now, this podcast is created and produced wholly by me. It's not connected to any network or sponsors, which means we can pretty much do whatever we want. But it also means we don't get any of their monies. It's free for you to listen. Always will be. But if you see the value in the Gig Life Podcast, you can leave a tip or a donation. Uh, You can find a link in the show notes on your podcast app or at thegiglifepodcast.com. Okay, this is episode 115. It's Paul Burton. Here we go. guest today is Paul Burton. Paul is a guitarist, educator, composer, producer and musical director from Sydney. Leo Sayer, Renee Geyer, John Waters, Jeff Duff and Jimmy Barnes are just a handful of artists that have been lucky enough to have Paul involved in their music. Paul joined Leo Sayer's band in 2005 and is still there today as guitarist and musical director. Paul teaches music and music production at Ultimo TAFE. He has managed and operated recording studios, played on hundreds of TV and radio jingles. He's played in many theatre show bands, including Looking Through a Glass Onion, Fame, Rent, and the Rocky Horror Show, as well as being involved in feature films and TV shows. Paul has travelled extensively through the US and Europe, as well as India, where he has studied the music and history of those places to fill his musician's playbook, which now gives him a unique approach to the music he plays today. Ask anyone who knows Paul and they'll tell you just how special he is. He's one of Australia's finest. So have a seat, grab a drink and settle in as I bring you some of the life and times of the great Mr. Paul Burton. I think we're rolling. Paul Burden, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Good to be here. Thanks, man. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm laughing because it's it's 8.45 and we dialed into each other at 8 o'clock and we're, we've only just got our um, <laughs> our, our technical whiz-bang, wish-doodah things working and yeah, there's 45 minutes of our life trying to suss out this technology that we're never going to get back. <laughs> Hurry up and wait. <laughs> I forgot to tell you, I've got to go at eight fifty. I've got a gig. Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I believe you, but you're in lockdown, so no, don't 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 do that to me. <laughs> yeah, how are you, man? Um, yeah, look, like I just mentioned, we're we're in uh, the lockdown two point here in Sydney, New South Wales. Um, we were supposed to meet up at your house last Thursday. And um, that was just as things were starting to kind of take off, and then we, you know, we decided that we'd we'd push it back to this week. And then, obviously, during that week, we're now in this two week lockdown, um, and uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, the Delta variant. The Delta variant. Yeah. 
coming to get you. In saying that, um, what did you have gig wise coming up in the next in the next little while, week week or two, or even? Oh, uh, look. At the moment, um, I have um, kind of not got uh, as many gigs as I, you know, would possibly normally have. Things were starting to kind of pick up. So uh, that w- what I lost over the weekend was I was going to be doing uh, the Camelot Lounge with Jeff Duff doing his uh, David Bowie Unzip show. Um, and then I've just been on the phone today through the second half of this year, I'm going to be doing a tour with uh, John Waters and Stu Darietta doing the John Lennon songbook. And that now is all kind of, you know, question marks about what's going to happen with that. So, yeah, I guess for anybody as far as gigs, it's all thrown back up in the air again. Yeah. So what was your what was your last gig? What's the last gig you did? Uh, the last couple of gigs I've done, that was uh, also Jeff Duff. Um, and then, yeah, just uh, I'd say, it, you know, in general now I'm not doing um, as many gigs as, you know, obviously since COVID has hit, mm. gigs have gone quieter, you know, so. Um, now are you are you teaching or are you still doing yeah. your – you're still doing yeah. your, your studio stuff? Yeah, look um, – my studio is um, in a state of kind of um, almost finished uh, chaos. So uh, <laughs> just today, I've I've been uh, I've, I've basically I've built a booth and uh, I've, uh, the the construction side of it is finished. So now I'm looking at doing the acoustic treatment. Yep. So I've just been kind of doing my research. I've only got a relatively small space, so I'm trying to kind of figure out a way to get the uh, most bang for buck as far as acoustic treatment um, being not taking up too much of the real estate that I've got. So, yeah, that side of uh, my life I'd like to kind of um, get happening again. That uh, I've basically had a – I've always been interested in uh, recording ever ever since I was a kid. I've always had some kind of a recording device. Mm. Uh, And uh, from the mid-'90s I kind of went into a – commercial uh, place and actually had a kind of uh, a recording studio partnership with uh, a friend of mine, David Claringwald. And, um, yeah, so since the mid-'90s I've kind of been in that world. I guess the majority of my life and my sort of professional career has been as a guitarist. But, yeah, the studio thing's sort of been the, on the side. And then in, in uh, for the last nine years now, I've been doing a bit of teaching at TAFE. So, yeah, that's kind of – so my life's divided with uh, three different hats and then I've got a family as well, so that's probably the most important hat. Yeah. So what are you, what are you teaching at TAFE? Are you, are you teaching just guitar or are you teaching a whole, a whole sort of music course? Yeah, look, I, I teach different uh, subjects. I started teaching just guitar and then it's kind of gradually – sort of changed and expanded over the years. So um, I've taught a little bit of uh, uh, subjects to do with recording and studios, Mm. and I also teach performance classes where it's uh, bands where they're, you know, performing as a band. Uh, I teach repertoire, Mm. and, you know, so it's a bunch of different things that I do, yeah. So repertoire, what what do you mean by that? Repertoire is where instead of... 
students coming in saying, this is the song I want to learn. Uh, we tell them this is what you're learning. Yeah, cool. That's so it's cool. a set repertoire that, that we decide as opposed to people saying this is what I'd like to learn. Yeah, that's cool. Now, yeah. uh, now being, you know, having been into recording, you know, for sort of most of your your career and something that you've always sort of thought about and done and now you're teaching recording at TAFE, how do how do the young musicians respond to when you're explaining how you used to do it back then? You know, we talk about tape and analog and um, do, do they kind of understand? Look, there's, that, a, that, yeah. there's a big fascination with um, students uh, about uh, the whole analog thing because it's sort of disappeared. So for, for a lot of them it's like hearing about this old magic that is no longer around. And so a lot of them say, you know, why can't, you know, why can't we get a tape machine in here kind of thing? Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not the kind of thing that like uh, that they would ever do. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I, I still have uh, got a, a tape machine and I've got a, I, I kind of got my studio together in the mid nineties. It was the transition days going from, between analog to the, the digital world, mm. so I've kind of have got uh, my feet in both camps, but I still certainly love the analog process. But part of what I like about it is that uh, when you work with a tape recorder, uh, you're working purely on the basis of what you're hearing. You're not looking at uh, the yeah, screen, yeah, and yeah. you're not looking at things. You're not going, mixing with your eyes. Yeah, that, yeah, that it doesn't thing. look right. We've yeah. got to do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, you know, there's no, none of that. Yeah. Uh, and also you have to make a commitment. So part of the digital process is that you leave all your options open forever and you've, you've always got sort of a gazillion options. But yep. in the analog days, you would just commit to that. That's the sound. That's what I'm doing. Even as far as the performance, like yeah. you, you yep. wouldn't have... You know, layers and layers of multiple performances. Yep. It's sort of you commit a lot sooner. Yep. And uh, and then the way I've always operated with the kind of analog thing, and I still do it even in the digital realm, is that I very much commit to a sound, and that then when it comes to mixing, I don't have to mix it because the sound's all there. It's kind of yep. done. Yeah. Yep. It's cooked. Yeah. The meal's cooked. Yeah, you, you either eat it or you don't. Yeah, that's cool. I, I spoke to Jim Kelly last year and uh, uh it's very similar mindset in that way you commit to the sound and and then that's the sound at the end you don't yeah. you know don't have to mess with that too much yeah. yeah no that that's really cool all right paul let's roll it right back to the to the beginning how it all began and and um you, you know your childhood and your lead up into you know how you got into music and um and then we'll see where it takes us so um where were you born I was born in uh, London. Um, uh, my mum and dad, uh, they've both passed away, but they were both Czech. Um, so I'm not a POM. I'm actually Czech by ancestry. But uh, yep. I was born in London and uh, came to Australia when I was eight years old. Uh, I grew up in London uh, in the era. I was born in 1956. So when I was seven years old in 1963, the Beatles and Beatlemania absolutely swept not only London and England, but, you know, the world, obviously. 
And so, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of uh, really into music even kind of before that. But that that's really what tipped me into um, hassling my dad to buy me a, a guitar. Uh, there was a music store in Wembley that we used to walk past and uh, if if I saw that music store, my, I'd sort of hang on to the window and my dad would have to drag me away. I was just absolutely <laughs> besotted by it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I... I um, Got turned on to music because of them. I was fortunate that my dad, uh, but well, both my mum and dad were musical, but my dad had a really fantastic wide range of music tastes. So in a lot of the European countries, they were really big fans of black American music. Yep. So my dad um, had all the kind of great black American singers, Ray Charles, Nat King Cole, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, but they were kind of played a lot in my household. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of got into that. I had this book called Burt Whedon's Play in a Day and I was stuck on page three of that, Tune the Guitar. I was stuck on that for about three years. <laughs> uh, so it was a relatively slow start. Yeah. And, and then um, my family moved to Australia when I was eight and uh, we moved to Sydney and then um, my guitar didn't make the journey. So then I started hassling my dad again can you get me a guitar? And then I noticed that there was a, uh, in our local newspaper, there was a lady advertising um, Spanish guitar lessons, Miss Perez. And uh, I was hassling my dad saying, look, I can, there's this lady and I've saved up the money for, for lessons and come on. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I literally used to save up my pocket money, not blow it on anything, but, you know, then I'd say, dad, I've got enough money for a lesson. Uh, so yeah, I was really keen, and so then, so that was um, a couple of years after we arrived. That uh, I was ten years old, and I started getting uh, lessons from Miss Verres. And then about a year or so later, um, I saw um, Jimi Hendrix uh, on TV doing "Wild Thing" from Monterey Pop Festival, where he burns the guitar, right. and I was like, "Holy crap!" And um, so. Uh, then I, I kind of uh, I, I decided, okay, I've got to get an electric guitar and an acoustic guitar is not going to be enough. And, um, yeah, I got an electric guitar and then, um, yeah, kind of started playing in high school. I guess my first bands were a couple of years into high school when I was about uh, 14. I, f- I first started playing with bands that were actually doing gigs around Sydney. Um then by the end of high school, I'd kind of formed a band where it was like I was the leader of the band, I was the singer. Uh, that wasn't a great uh, strength of mine. I, in those days, I, I realised that uh, my my strength was really my guitar playing, not my singing. But, yeah, I, so I had my high school band and, and we basically, and that was a band called Hot and Sloppy, and uh, <laughs> we, we went into what was then uh, kind of like the... There was a couple of band competitions. There was Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds and then that got uh, kind of replaced or eclipsed by the 2SM Pepsi Pop Poll. And so we went into that in 1973 and we came second second to Finch, uh, as a a matter of fact. It had Bob Spencer and um, Owen Orford, a couple of kind of uh, figures of the Sydney music scene that went on. and then so basically as a part of the prize of that, I got a one-year scholarship to the conservatorium to, mm. to their newly formed jazz department. 
so yeah, I kind of uh, I was not a jazzer, but I was mm. thrust into that world and got a bit of a uh, you know thrown into the deep and didn't know what was going on. And then yeah, kind of um, various you know connections led you know to other things, and yeah, I kind of gradually bit by bit got my uh, enough experience, enough connections to actually start kind of existing as a musician. And then I guess um, when I think about it now, I, I guess um, s- some of the people that I work with, you know, right to this day, I can draw like a line all the way back to my very earliest days of high school and the people that I, I met there and the various friends and music connections that they've all kind of just spread out into this network of people that I know and have led me into all kinds of other things. Going back to, you know, starting to play guitar, was there, I know you said you saw, you saw the Hendrix thing on, on TV, but before that, you know, what, what sort of got you into guitar? Was there a particular artist or was it was like a guitarist that you heard um, or saw or was there a particular record or something that made you go, I, I, I need to do that? Oh, definitely. Like I said, the two, the the, the greatest uh, two influences on me, I would say, would be the Beatles that got me started yeah. and then Jimi Hendrix that, you know, made me go, I've got okay. to get an electric guitar. So it was like going electric that was kind of like, yeah, and that, um, like for me, when, when I when I think about it now, uh, Jimmy's still uh, really. Uh, when I listen to him, it still just blows me away. Of like a guy that, in in a very few number of years, like he, he only played guitar for uh, you know not that many years, and uh, what he did to revolutionise the world of electric guitar playing, I still think he is absolutely amazing. Mm. I'm not a guitarist myself, so I don't, I don't quite um, sort of get that. I, I I haven't studied Hendrix enough, or or know enough about sort of guitar to to know the impact. I mean, I can certainly name drummers that did that for me, but um, but yeah, that's really cool. H- Hendrix is. Uh, I I know that when I was coming up in my hometown in New Zealand, Hendrix was was big on the you know the young guitarists that I was playing with. Yeah, you know, so we were playing a lot of that music, but I didn't understand Mitch Mitchell at all. Yeah, <laughs> I just played, I just played my versions of these Hendrix songs, Purple Haze, and you know, all, all that kind of. I just played it my way. I never really listened to like, but I do know and and hear the guitar, you know, so the the melodies, but I've never really focused on the drumming. Or the, yeah. or the rhythm section of that music because yeah you, look I guess um, you know the 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 way people play things has evolved so much so when you listen to a lot of those um, songs from the like kind of mid late sixties uh, the way the drummers play if if a drummer did that in, you know today that people would just go like well you're fired or you're, <laughs> That's you're right. not hired like, you're too you busy know, man <laughs> yeah too busy yeah 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 they they don't, they don't you know keep a a pattern going for more than one bar before there's a drum fill. And, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I guess um, Mitch Mitchell, I guess he was um, sort of, a, you know, I guess a, a, um, coming from a, a bit of a jazz 
headspace. So it wasn't about laying down a groove. Yep. Uh, that you know when you know a lot of the music that I kind of love. Uh, yeah, I, I really am into soul and R and B and funk and, yep. uh, and reggae and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that style of drumming of Mitch Mitchell would never cut the, cut the mustard <laughs> in, uh, in, yeah. in a lot of other genres. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's similar to sort of Keith Moon and Ginger Baker in a way. Yeah, Ginger Baker was probably a little bit more formed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's still crazy, it's like still crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so h- how did you take the lessons when you first started going? Look, to, uh, we're not talking about when you when you got that scholarship, but before before that, were you look, going to get lessons, or were you, did you self teach yourself to a point? Yeah, look, um, what I no, I, I yeah, I, I had this book playing a day, playing a day, yeah. Uh, Playing a day, I think that's pretty optimistic. <laughs> you might be able to play, but uh, you're not going to get far in one day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, um, my dad, even though he was uh, musical, he didn't play guitar, and so I didn't have anyone that could, you know, uh, show me, you know, what to do. And so I, I used to just walk around the house. Um, thrashing the guitar like punk style. Yeah. It wasn't in tune. That was the page that I was stuck on, tune the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it wasn't in tune, yeah. but I knew that you, you had to move your, your, you know, the fingers around on the left hand. I'm right-handed, so yeah. you know, I was moving the fingers around on the neck and I was thrashing it mercilessly, but it wasn't in tune and I was singing Beatles songs, so it probably wasn't a very pleasant sound. So it wasn't <laughs> until I started with um, my Spanish um, teacher Miss yeah. Perez that I you know but I practiced really hard and then I, I remember you know one of the big breakthroughs for me as well was one day that I was listening to something on the radio and I played the same chord and I realized that I could work music out by ear by you know I could listen to it and play and that that was a huge thing and like I don't know no, yeah that wasn't something anybody taught me it was just this you know making the connection that that chord that I'm hearing is, yeah, that I could kind of figure it out on the guitar. So, yeah, I, I guess um, I, So w- when I bought my electric guitar, um, I'd been going for about a year to get learning classical guitar and so I'd learned uh, she was teaching me how to read music as well. So it was a, it was a pretty good foundation. And um, but when I brought in my electric guitar, that was the last lesson that I ever had with Miss Ferris. <laughs> She thought it was like I brought in, you know, yeah, the, the devil. devil. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, so were you? Was she teaching you sort of flamenco? Type? Yeah, yeah, right. Spanish right. guitar, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, so yeah, so that was really great, and yeah. I still love Spanish guitar. Like, yeah. um, you know, if, when I hear those guys like on nylon string guitar, yeah. the fire that they breathe out of a nylon string, it's like incredible. So yeah, yeah, I still love that, but I haven't pursued that. Um, so, and then basically, you know, that, that was like the beginning of high school. So then through high school, I was mostly self-taught. I did get a couple of lessons here and there from, you know, a couple of people, but by and large through, you know, through high school, I was self-taught. Then I had the, the one year going to the conservatorium, which mm. was like um, I wasn't a jazzer, so I was, I was a bit of a fish out of water, but I, it, it really, again, was really good grounding in understanding kind of music theory and uh, arranging improvisation. I had some really great teachers and great 
I had uh, George Goller and and Bill Motzing with uh, two of my favourite teachers, and they were both incredible musicians and super uh, understanding and helpful and uh, inspirational, really. Mm. So, did you enjoy? Did you enjoy it? I did, yeah. For at, me, at the at the time, not not sort of looking back and. Oh yeah, at the time, like uh, I guess. Uh, for me, I've always been kind of a bit of a, a sponge or whatever of just kind of trying to soak up whatever I could. Yeah. And, I, and even though um, that genre of jazz isn't really my thing, yeah. I certainly um, appreciate the uh, the skill and complexity and, you know, whatever the achievement for people to be able to play that, you know, uh, like most jazz musicians They've got a, a like for one thing a, a great ability to improvise, and then really good ears. So I, mm. th- they were two things that I could look at them. And even though I'd say, well, I'm not really that keen on that music, but I would, lo- I certainly would love to know how to improvise and to have ears as good as you guys. So yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Mm. Did you make some contacts while you were there? Were, were you sort of playing in in because I, I like I, I know I know of. People that have been to a con to the con, um, you know, sort of during that time, they've, you know, formed little trios and gone out and played, and just to make a little yeah. bit of money to look, sort of keep. No, them. look, uh, I was probably the the odd man out that everybody else there was really diehard jazz fans, yep. and I was still, uh, you know, into rock and funk and soul and blues, and so no, no yeah. I, I wasn't really interested in playing jazz, and not, none of the jazzers were interested in playing any of the stuff I wanted to play. So that that wasn't a place that I, uh, when I think about that now, um, I don't think I've got a single kind of network connection that led. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you were kind of sitting in the quad by yourself eating your lunch. Uh, well, I was, I was, I was actively thinking about, about rock. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember people used to smirk a little bit when when I when I say what I've been listening to. They'd go ha 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 ha, ha you know. Yeah, <laughs> but that's cool. Uh, like, yeah, that's know, cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind being the odd man out. No, that's cool. All right. So after the after the um that year scholarship ends at the con, what's what sort of happens after that? Look, what I had uh, then. Um, I got in a, um, kind of, a, uh, again, from people that I knew through school. There was a, a guy that was a um, couple of years younger uh, than me called John uh, Woodhouse. He was a multi-instrumentalist and he had played in the show Godspell when I think he quit school at 15 or 16 and he went into the, um, the musical Godspell. Uh, the, through that, he met a keyboard player, a guy called Rory Thomas. And um, Rory had a connection uh, to um, some people that were putting together, a, they were trying to put together the Australian version of The Monkeys, the TV show The Monkeys. So uh, that was one of the things that I kind of did. The TV show ne- never ended up happening, but um, <laughs> we did a bunch of kind of... Um, recording, you know, we rehearsed a ton of songs. We didn't actually do any gigs. We, it was kind of lining up for this uh, TV show. I worked with another uh, guy who's uh, an American guy 
who's a guy called John Kirk, who's a really fantastic soul singer. Um, and that was a really, you know, great opportunity for me because that's music that I really loved and to work with an American guy that could really nail that stuff. And he had an understanding of, you know, groove and laying back on the beat and, you know, uh, concepts that I'd never even considered, like, you know, right. that, that was a real eye-opener. So, yeah, that I kind of did, like, you know, various little gigs and then, you know, kind of bit by bit, um, you know, gradually kind of found my way. I, I didn't have any sort of one particular, you know, breakthrough gig that kind of, you know, like, you know, launched me or anything. It was just sort of step by step by step and, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, one thing led to another. So I, I played, um, uh, yeah, so basically what I did after um, a few years of, uh, like a few years after high school, I did a, uh, what a lot of Australians were doing then. I kind of backpacked my way across Southeast Asia mm. and then lived in London for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, went to a million auditions there and, you um, um, kind of found out that uh, what I realised then by living in London is that a lot of the music that I really truly loved was American and it had never really dawned on me but um, it kind of made me realise, holy shit, nearly all the stuff that I really, really love is either from America or it was like English bands that were trying to sound American. Right. So, yeah, that, that was interesting and... Um, yeah, so I kind of played in different, you know, kind of bands that did different stuff there and then kind of came back to Australia um, in, this is 1980. And then from then on I played in a bunch of different bands. I played in a band called The Proteins. Uh, that led to a band called The Motivators. The Motivators led to Mark Edwards. Mark Edwards led to... All kinds of things through, it, through working with Mark Edwards, I made a connection with Michael Hegarty, and Michael was um, uh, and, and actually through the motivators as well. I got to meet Jimmy Barnes. Um, so um, for the that, for the that people that people that don't know, Michael Hegarty is the long term bass player for Jimmy Barnes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I, I kind of got to you know just um, bit by bit meet people. Through um, through being in the motivators, uh, the, the lead singer of that was Kenny Miller, and uh, Kenny was friends with Jimmy Barnes, so that kind of led me to an introduction to Jimmy. Um, so this would have been, I guess, the early mid '80s, around the time that Cold Chisel were kind of wrapping up, mm. um, and I yeah did some recording with Jimmy. Um, did various, uh, yeah, you know, various gigs and, you know, I suppose um, those bands uh, that I just mentioned there, they were all kind of original bands. So they were bands like where we were trying to kind of write our original material and take over the world with original songs, and yeah. um, which uh, that uh, can be a challenge, <laughs> not, not necessarily um, one that, you know, is, um, you know, that you can be immediately successful with. And then, you know, through all of that, I was also playing in, you know, whatever, you know, cover bands and, you know, just doing whatever I could to kind of survive. How was your your tastes in music starting to change? Were you getting introduced to, oh, I guess what I mean by that is, like I, I know that you're, you know, you're quite 
quite deep into the American, you know, American soul music and and Chicago blues and and that that kind of music. Um, and you were saying you were also saying earlier that like when you were in London. Did you oh, – let me just backpedal a little bit. So I was going to ask this question a little bit earlier. So when you were in London, and you, you mentioned that once you got there and you, you started going to these auditions that you realised that the music that you really loved was these bands that were in America. Did it did it take you that trip to London? Did you did you think that music was there, like like in London? And then once well, you got there, you realised, oh, actually it's I'm, – I'm, I'm in the wrong place. Should I? A little bit, yeah. Okay. A little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess the thing that uh, I was surprised by in London is it was so uh, fashion and look orientated. Okay. And so, you know, I was kind of like, you know, um, okay, I know that, you know, whatever, that as a, mus- as a gigging musician, you've got to, you know, have, um, you know, you've got to have your, be professional and kind of, you know, have your shit together. But uh, I was surprised by the obsession with uh, the fashion and the look. Right. Um, I guess uh, the other thing in London that I remember that really surprised me as well was that people, they they weren't only interested in what music you liked, they wanted to know what you hated. That was really important to know what was on your, what's on your top ten hate list. And I'd say to people, I don't really have a hate list. Like, you know, I, I kind of try to see in any music, I try to find something that I like. And um, that, that used to be uh, very perplexing for a lot of Londoners. Um, so when I was there, um, it was the, uh, so I'm talking about uh, being there in 78, 79. So that is kind of at the uh, advent of, or, you know, what had just erupted was the punk era. And then the kind of new wave thing. So definitely I would say there were some bands that I heard in London that uh, did change my taste. So, uh, for example, I would say I can still clearly remember the first day or the first time I heard Roxanne, um, The Police, and I fell off my chair. I was like, holy shit. Like that, who the hell is that? And like, what is going on there? So. Um, and there were a few of the kind of, you know, what we can then call the new wave um, artists that I loved. So Elvis Costello was another one that I just thought was, you know, really fantastic. So there were, um, you know, even though the, I'd say I, I realised that a lot of what I really loved was, you know, music that had come. And I realised the other thing now that I realised a lot of the music that I love that came out of America was actually made by what are now called integrated bands, where it was black musicians and white musicians. So, for example, the Stax band, yep. um, you know, the Motown bands had, you know, black and white people playing together. And I didn't realise that that was considered revolutionary, you know, for the first day in America. Yeah. But, uh, so that, that that's a lot of the music that I love. But, yeah, definitely, you know, uh, I'd say uh, my tastes, um, have always been broad. I, 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 I sort of, um, I always try to find in almost any music. I, I look at it of what is good about it rather than the London thing of what what don't I like about it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so um, for me, I, I guess the thing. I, yeah, I could say, uh, yeah, a lot of the um, kind of English bands that I loved were ones that had come from trying to be 
you know, you know, kind of reinventing American music. But then, like a band like The Police, I guess that they were reinventing uh, pop, uh, reggae, reggae yeah. you know, hard rock, jazz, uh, Sting's incredible vocals and uh, melodies. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was interesting days. Had you heard that kind of guitaring before, like that that Andy Summer type? No, that, no, not- for me, yeah, for me that was kind of fresh as well of um, – but, yeah, everything about that, like when I heard that track, Roxanne, I was just kind of like, wow. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's particularly, I, you know, I, I was blown out by um, the the sort of the timing of the verse and I'm going like, what yeah. the hell is going on there? And, <laughs> you know, Steve, uh, sorry, Stuart Copeland, Stuart Copeland like, what, yeah. what an amazing drama. Yep. And then that it had that kind of really kind of uh, oddball, disjointed reggae verse, but then the, steamroller powerhouse pop yeah. pop rock chorus and it was like holy shit i can dig that yeah a little yeah. bit of sort of yeah like that chorus is almost scar type drum wise you know it's like yeah yeah, yeah Stuart copeland i could talk talk for days about that guy he's yeah, incredible yeah, awesome all right so so at at that stage were you were, oh, we kind of we bounced all over the place, but were you kind of thinking I, I want to get to the states at some stage? Because I know you did get there. So yeah, at, at, yeah. What what time were you starting to think? Yeah, I want to get over there. I want to I want to start sussing out that scene. Look, um, at the, at the yeah, that's the other thing that I'd have to say was that was a, a realization, a huge realization for me as well. Uh, when I went to London. I was there for about a year and a half or so. Uh, what I realised was I was so thankful that my dad had made the decision to move our family to Australia. Okay. I, I, it really made me appreciate Australia. And, uh, yeah, I'd have to say that kind of was one of the other big realisations that I had there. Um, as far as, for me, um, doing, you know, stuff, um, so basically, you know, what I figured then, um, uh, uh, in those days, I, uh, I hadn't actually, I, I didn't realise that my parents hadn't had me, um, my citizenship as an Australian. Uh, had I thought, I just assumed it had been done when we came to Australia, but it wasn't. I was still a British citizen. So I was really keen to come back to Australia and get my Australian citizenship mm-hmm. organised. Um so that that was kind of a high priority for me. Uh, then I guess once I got back to Australia, then I, I kind of just got on, um, I don't know, uh, you know, got on a roll and one thing led to another. And so the notion of going to America um, became, you know, it wasn't sort of something that, even though that was the music that I loved, it wasn't that I, I wasn't someone who was thinking I've got to go to America okay. to kind of experience that. Um, it, it more became a thing of how can I, uh, you know, survive and exist and prosper as a musician. Okay. And I, and I yeah, I've, I gradually found, a, you know, a place for myself in Sydney. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where my... Um, my career has, you know, has been. It's uh, here in Sydney. Yep. You've had a couple of stints with Renee Geyer. So yep. can we talk about 
that time and how how you originally uh, ended up getting into her band and 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 who were yeah. some of the pl- people that you're playing with in those bands? Yeah, look, uh, kind of what led uh, there were t- like two connections that I had that um, led me into playing with Renee. Uh, one of them was that I was working in the Mark Williams band. Uh, this is in the early 90s. He had um, a huge hit with Show No Mercy. Yep. Yeah. Um, and we toured uh, relentlessly like six, seven, eight, nine, ten shows a week for a year. Wow. So um, that was a really good gig in terms of me meeting uh, Victor Rounds, who was the bass player, Steve Fernley was the drummer, Tim Weddy was the keyboard player, and obviously Mark. Um, that was a really great gig that loads of people would were coming to see that gig. So that kind of um, definitely helped me, you know, get known in the Sydney scene. Yep. Um, so one of the guys that used to come and see Mark play uh, quite uh, quite a lot was Harry Bruce, who had also worked with Mark Williams in the in the band Boy Rocking. Um, so Harry uh, came, and Harry was in Renee's band for you know forever kind of thing. Uh, so that was sort of um, one uh, one of the things that led me to it. Then the other was that I was playing with Shauna Jensen. Uh, she had a, a band called The Soul R System. And Mark Kennedy was the drummer in that. And, and so Mark was playing drums with Renee. So um, the, between Mark and Harry, that I think they were both uh, putting my, my name up in the ring uh, or in the hat or whatever. And so it kind of came around in um, the uh, Renee had done the album Difficult Woman with Paul Kelly. And so she had a bit of a renaissance and a bit of a kind of um, rekindling of her career. She'd lived in America for many years and she'd basically moved back to Australia in the mid-90s. And so, yeah, that's um, that I, I kind of was fortunate enough to have my name uh, thrown up there. And, yeah, so uh, did some incredible gigs. Almost lost uh, the gig at the first rehearsal, though. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Um had, had barely, um, you know, we'd barely rehearsed anything. It was like she just assumed that I should know everything. Um, she sort of demands perfection and, you know, and, and more. Um, and um, she then called a song that wasn't on the set list and wasn't on the um, kind of repertoire that I'd learnt. And so I was a bit, little bit tentative about it. And so it, you know, we had a bit of a standoff or whatever, uh, kind of uh, the rehearsal broke down and she wasn't happy. Mm. And she asked me who my favourite guitarist was and um, she, she wasn't happy with it, you know, my answer and whatever. So she stormed <laughs> out of the rehearsal room and, um, and I said to her, Sorry, can I, hang on, can I, can I ask who you said your favourite guitarist oh, was? Um, look, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I said Jason Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> Who had just had a hit with um, Hey Mona? Check, check one, two, three with yeah. Mona. Hey, hey. And he was playing guitar on it. And I said he was my favourite guitarist. And she stormed out of the rehearsal room. And I said oh. to Harry, I think I've just talked my way out of the gig. And Harry said, No, I think she really likes you. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, um, that, you know, that we, we did our first gig was um, uh, literally with like about a half an hour's rehearsal. And uh, at that point, she'd decided to change. The, um, she kept Mark and Harry as the rhythm section and she finally parted ways with Mal Logan, who had been her keyboard player for many years, 
and Steve Edmonds had been playing guitar with us. He decided to do this clean sweep. And so myself and George Powers came in. George was a great keyboard player. Uh, rest in peace, Georgie. He's no longer with us. But um, So we did about a half an hour's rehearsal and then our first show was at Byron Bay Blues Fest and sitting on the side of the stage is Jackson Brown and he, mm. he comes over um, after we've finished and he starts talking to me and he says, ah, oh, that was incredible. You guys are so tight. You must have been touring for months. And I said, that's my first show. Right. And he said, well, you must have rehearsed for months. And I said, we rehearsed for, we rehearsed for about 30 minutes. And he said, oh, you're bullshitting me, man. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't realise I was telling him the truth. Oh, that's cool. So no, anyway, um, so yeah, I, so, I, I've just been at home jamming to Jason Donovan records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jason Donovan, yeah. Anyway, it, it was a stupid thing to say. but um, Anyway, so, um, yeah, uh, I've got to say, yeah, I love Renee. Um, playing with her um, was just uh, an incredible experience. Um, I think she's probably the, the greatest Australian singer that, uh, for my taste of the style of music that I love, I think, yeah, she's the greatest. And uh, so basically um, I played with her for about uh, seven or eight years from the mid-90s to the early 2000s. And then um, I played with her again for about two or three years from 2016 to 2019. Right. Yeah, so... Uh, had some in- incredible gigs, got to meet some incredible people, um, get to, you know, made some great music, made a great album. We did the album Sweet Life, um, which I f- still feel really proud of as a really great moment. Right. Um, got to meet through working with Renee, got to meet and play with a lot of the Melbourne great musos, Ross Hannaford, who was on that Sweet Life album, John Watson, um, Steve Hadley, Bruce Hames, just so many great musicians from Melbourne that I, I got to meet and make music with. So, yeah, it was a great experience. Mm. One night at the basement in the sort of early 2000s, you guys were playing there and and a little curly-haired Englishman rocked in there after a show to, to check you out. And he, oh, yeah. And he, he ended, ended up stealing half the band to yeah. join his band. So, yeah, that's so that, – that's um, – that's – that's what Leo told me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah so how, how did uh, how did Leo approach you? And talking about Leo Sayer, um, you've been yeah, look, you've been with Leo Sayer for for many years now. Yeah, look, that you know, basically they're the two longest gigs I've ever done. So yep. with Leo now, it's um, that um, he moved to Australia in two thousand and five, and I've been playing with him since he moved here. So it's sixteen years. So yep. and I guess I did about. 10 or 11 years or so with Renee. So, yeah, they're the two longest kind of running gigs that I've ever done. Um, mm. With Leo, um, yeah, he, he got up and sat in with, with Renee and, um, you know, um, he's a, just such an incredible character and uh, such a live wire. Mm. And so, yeah, so um, he kind of contacted, um, he, he, when he came to Australia, he was uh, being managed by Steve White. Um, and so Steve actually was the person that kind of got in contact with the members of the band. Um, so, yeah, again, I, I um, feel incredibly fortunate that kind of my, the like, whatever the uh, my paths crossed and, the you know, the planets lined up because I, I certainly think with, with anything in the music business there, there is, there's, you know, whatever they say, uh, luck is a thing of uh, preparation, uh, when it coincides with an opportunity. So, yeah, I guess 
uh, I'd been preparing for a long time and then, yeah, got the opportunity to, you know, uh, meet Leo and, uh, yeah, he was happy with my playing and so, yeah, been there for a long time and, yeah, super, super nice guy, super talented and, again, um, he just knows so many amazing people in this world and so, yeah, it's been, been great working with him. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. You're his uh, musical director. Look, that is, uh, I'd have to qualify that. Um, Leo is his own musical director. Okay. Uh, I, I wear that hat occasionally. Okay. Where, where um, for example, uh, this is three years ago now, we went to South Africa and we did a, a one-week, um, like, little mini tour uh, we, we were only in Johannesburg, but we picked up an all South African band and crew, everybody you know, other than uh, me and Leo and uh, Leo's manager, Mark Seidau, uh, everybody was um, uh, South African. So that was me kind of uh, that was the MD. So, yeah, occasionally when he does things like that, yeah, I, I MD for him. But a lot of the time when we do gigs, I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know, sort of a band leader of sorts, but um, okay. a lot of the time he's really his own MD. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, cool. But, yeah, that, that you know, the, the South African show that we did uh, was, again, another just outstanding experience where um, got to meet the absolute gun musicians of South Africa and they were this incredible crew of people and uh, they were just awesome. And so we just had a, a few days to uh get a get you know get the show together and then um we did three shows at kind of like uh they've got a big casino there in Johannesburg and we did three sellout shows at this two and a half thousand um seat auditorium yeah it was great yeah very very cool you spent some time in um India learning some learning Indian music yeah. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, how that came about and and what you sort of took away from that. And and to expand on it a little bit, how does that um experience and that music sort of serve you today? If yeah. if at all. Look, um I guess I've been uh kind of fascinated by the the sounds of Indian music. I was uh a lot of people say, oh, you know, was it, was it the sitar? And it's actually was the tablas yeah, that well, really yeah. um, I, found, I found absolutely kind of, you know, like bewildering. Um, my brother, um, you know, is a drummer. He, he, he wasn't a uh, – he, he's actually a jeweller by profession. He didn't follow uh, music as a, as a path, but um, he was a drummer. And so as a kid growing up, I, there was drums at home, so I, I was really into drums and kind of rhythm. And I was always completely fascinated by how one person could get the sounds they were getting out of a pair of, uh, um, so you know, the, the drums. In, and so basically in, in India, what I did, uh, I went to a music school for, um, it was like a, you know, a really small one-man outfit. It wasn't, when I say a school, it wasn't like, you know, a, a college or, you know, with. Uh, so I was just getting one-on-one lessons. And so I learned... Uh, tabla and harmonium and just a very, you know, very uh, quick glance on the sitar. But basically I, I, um, he gave me the sitar 
And he said, oh, you can play it. And I said, no, I can't play sitar. You know, I can play guitar. And he says, oh, mm. you know. Uh, but, um, so it was tablas that I was really kind of keen on. So what I would say in terms of, and so I went to this uh, six mornings a week for um, three hours um, for two months. So it was really just sort of sticking my toe in the water. It wasn't really, you know, getting uh, into it in depth. But what I would say that one of the things that really stayed with me that I kind of uh, really um, kind of like uh, concept-wise, with Indian music, they've got um, ragas, which is kind of like sort of like saying a scale, but it's sort of more than a scale. It's also saying a, like a, a melody, like a rule. And it's also then in Indian music's got a lot of improvisation. So you, you will state the, the raga, which is, you know, the melody, and then you improvise on it mm. using guidelines that that uh, melody, that raga has set. And the thing that I, uh, I really enjoyed about uh, the, the kind of the concept that the, uh, my teacher, his name is Guruji, uh, what, what he used to say to me is that uh, you can practice this uh, raga. So like this one here, is a, you know, uh, let's say it's a wedding raga. He said, you can practice it, but the only time this raga will really spring to life is when you play it at a wedding. Mm. And so for me, that there's this sort of concept that, um, that I have taken from that, that, uh, yeah, that, you, you know, when you practice your music, you can sort of practice it and you can hone it and you can polish it or whatever, but, there's that thing of the actual occasion of when your music will really fly. And so, yeah, that, that sort of is something um, just as a sort of concept uh, that, yeah, it, that really touched my heart and I can kind of uh, relate to that. So it's something for me that I guess I try to be a really emotional player. I'm a really emotional person. I'll, you know, I start crying at the drop of a hat and whatever and I really try to put, as much emotion as I can into my playing. And so when I'm in that moment, like, you know, whatever the, the wedding rag or the, you know, whatever the, you know, that, that transposes to in Western music, if it's, if it's a song that's a love song or if it's a song that's whatever, I, I really try to put all my emotion of that particular feeling into that song. So, yeah, that, that I guess is, you know, the, in the long run, what the lesson was of me, you know, learning from uh, the, my Guruji for a couple of months there. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. when you, you talked about the wedding raga yep. and how you won't, like your, your um, teacher said, you won't kind of really get it until you actually play it at a wedding. Is that meaning that the the guests of the wedding are know that, that they know that you're going to play that particular music and or harmony melody uh, melody rhythm or whatever and so so they'll give i, I don't quite understand look what you uh, what it is for me is it's kind of like saying um it's getting to the emotional uh content of what music is about and that so in the indian concept uh it is this thought that Let's say it's let's say it's the opposite of a wedding. Let's say it's a funeral a piece of music for a funeral. Again, that uh, there's a 
whatever it is, intensity or uh, commitment Mm. that that piece of music carries when it is played at that particular time, at that correct setting. Okay. Okay. So it's like, you know, so for me, so how I interpret that in in my music is that uh, when people ask me, let's say, for example, if someone, you know, asked me to play on a session, Sometimes I play on recordings where the vocal hasn't been recorded and I'll say to them, well, what's, what's the lyric? What's the song about? Yeah. Because I, I want to know, is the song, uh, you know, I hate you or is the song I love you? Because if, if you tell me the song is, the lyric of the song is about breaking up with, you know, my partner or whatever, I'm going to play it differently than if you tell me the yeah. song's about this person I fell in love with. Gotcha. So, yeah, I try to adapt uh, what I do uh, for the moment and, you know, that that song lives in. It might seem, I don't know, um, I don't know, you know, so, like I, I might, you know, that, that might just seem like nonsense. but that, that, nah, it's not something at all. Not, I, I, I get it now. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's I guess it's. Yeah, it's like putting, yeah, for me, it's putting all my heart and soul, but making sure I'm doing it in the right direction. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah. Um, uh, look, somebody, you know, I do the, these various Beatles shows, and uh, on one of them, I, I played um, the, the song Something, and someone came up to me, someone in the audience that I didn't know, and they said, uh, What were you thinking about when you played the solo of Something? And I said, I was just thinking about my wife. Um, so, you know, um, I know that George wrote that song, you know, in, in a moment where he's, uh, it's a moment of devotion to somebody that he loves. So that is the same wavelength that I'm trying to be on when I was playing that song. So it's trying to tap into the wavelength and the emotion of where something has come from and it's, you know, that that's kind of a headspace of mine. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You also spent some time uh, in the States, you know, went to different parts. You, I think you spent some time in sort of Memphis and. Yeah. Look, yeah. Uh, I, I had, uh, uh, my wife is American yep. and um, I've been to America a few times. Uh, I, uh, uh, I've uh, been fortunate that um, uh, I met my wife. Um, she was living in Chicago and we both went um to see James Brown play. And so uh, I, um, after a James Brown show, I, I met my wife. So that was like a, cool. an incredible piece of good fortune. Wow. And yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Thank you, James Brown. Yeah. <laughs> um, go stick back. I'm going to kiss myself. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> um, look, uh, I've done... Uh, my first trip that I did to America, I went there in 1997 and I only went to two places. I went to New York and New Orleans and mm-hmm. uh, it was like being in two different worlds. Yeah. It was like unbelievable um, how how it's not just the other side of the country but it's like just two completely different, you know, worlds in music and in so many ways. And then um, when I met my wife, um we did a road trip and we um, spent a week in Memphis and, yeah, we drove down from Chicago to Memphis and spent um, just under a week there and um, had an incredible time. 
look, for me, I would say um, th- uh, a lot of the music that has come out of Memphis um, has been what really touched my heart. And like I, I said earlier, I didn't realise at the time that a lot of the bands that I was digging there, which was, you know, let's say, for example, the Stax Band, where it was um, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn, uh, Booker T. Jones and Al Jackson Jr., you know, two black guys and two white guys. I, I didn't know that as a kid, but mm. uh, that music sure um, still to this day, yeah, really, you know, touches me deep within. Memphis is an incredible place. Like um, we went to um, a Sunday church service at Al Green's church. Uh, Al Green was not there that day. He had a depth, but it was still an incredible experience. Um, went to a um, couple of the great studios and a couple of the amazing locations. So, yeah, going to Sun Studios and um, Stax Studio has been, uh, it was actually demolished. So there's a, they've recreated a kind of um, a, a new version of it. But, yes, um, Sun Studio is still there. And then um, Royal Studios, uh, which is where Al Green recorded, that's still there. And there's a couple of great studios so yeah for me it was a, a great vibe and then we did another trip uh where we did a road trip chicago to new orleans and uh drove right through mississippi and uh had some incredible experiences um on that trip as well and then yeah new orleans is a, a place that i could happily go and visit again amazing music coming out of there mm. um yeah but um as a has kind of panned out. I haven't done that much work there. Um, uh, Leo, uh, we almost, we, we were within a whisker of doing an American tour a couple of years ago. It was going to be done on a similar basis of uh, just me going over with Leo and picking up an American band. Uh, unfortunately, that tour didn't eventuate. So I've, I've not done that much work there. Um, but yeah, I certainly love the music that's come out of the place. Yeah. What was your takeaway from New York in regards to music? Look, uh, I um, know like a, a couple of people that have um, kind of gone there, and and um, like I'm thinking at the moment about Ben Butler. Uh, ben is uh, a, a Aussie guitarist that. Um, went to New York in, I'm trying to think, it would have been maybe the early mid-90s because he'd already been there for a couple of years when I was there in 97. And uh, he has managed to carve out an incredible career playing with, with the greatest people you know, on the planet. So I'd say the thing with New York is that it's an incredibly uh, yeah, jostling, vibrant, uh, dog-eat-dog Mm. Uh, tough city, but if you can kind of get ahead there, you can really kind of uh, the sky's the limit kind of thing. Mm. Um, for me, I guess uh, one thing that I really remember uh, musically, I think everybody, uh, when you're a musician, as this is a, a you know a bit of a sweeping generalization, but um, I would say. Most musicians are a pretty good reflection of the place and the times they live in. And so if you live in New York, if you're going to be successful as a musician, you really need to be pushy and you need to be able to 
you know, be able to get out there and, you know, shove your face out there and elbow the person next to you out of the way and get get a, you know, like, uh, because if you're not doing it, someone else is doing it to you. So, yeah, uh, I'd I'd say that's one thing that for Australian musicians, that's going to be a challenge because Aussies, you know, in general, we're pretty kind of laid back as far as uh, being able to blow our own trumpet. But in America, that that thing of being able to believe in yourself and have self-confidence and be able to, you know, sell yourself Mm. uh, is a skill that they have got a a lot more than most Aussies. So, yeah, um, but uh, uh, I'll I'll give you a quick example about um, the last band that I saw uh, when I was there in 1997, the last band that I saw just before I went to uh, New Orleans, it was... um, um, a, a jazz band, and it was like basically uh, before the drummer had managed to finish his count, so he'd gone a one, two, a one, two, and as he was counting in the second bar, half the band were already playing. He hadn't finished his counting, and yeah, you know, everyone's already off and running. It's like they haven't waited for the starters gun. It's kind of like, well, we know he's going to be starting, so yeah, we're off and running. Uh, whereas in New Orleans, the very first band that I saw, it was the total opposite. This drummer counted in and not a single person played on beat one. <laughs> <laughs> so he went, oh, one, two, three, four. <laughs> there was no one. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, we're in a, in a bit of a different world here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um. Now, you talked a little bit, or you mentioned the Beatles show that you um, are a part of, or your musical, you, you kind of put that together, don't you? The- yeah, look, uh, I do a couple of different ones. Uh, basically, the, the, the first one that I did, which uh, was in 2006, is a show called Let It Be. And um, that one has run, I think we've done five national tours since then. The last one was 2019. Um, and so, yeah, that one I've, uh, uh, I'm the MD on that one. I also do a couple of other ones um, that there's been a, a couple of different people that have been the MD. So basically uh, I did the White Album and that started out, that's had, it started out with Stu Darietta was the MD. And then um, these days, uh, Rex Go is the MD on that one. And then I've done a bunch. Um, yeah, so it's kind of funny for me in a way because after talking about that it was the Beatles that yeah. got me going as a yeah, kid. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, that here I am still, yeah, not not at the moment. Um, uh, the, those bigger scale shows, uh, like, you know, the, uh, the, the, those Beatles shows, they're kind of like, we do the Opera House and um, Hamer Hall and QPAC and we do the kind of bigger concert halls. Those shows uh, have been on the back burner and I don't see at the moment, I, you know, don't see anything likely to be happening. Um, you know, uh, my sort of smaller and medium gigs started picking up, but uh, the, the bigger ones like with Leo and the Beatles ones, they're uh, very quiet. So, mm. but, yeah, they've been a you know, great experience for me. Going back and uh, looking at that music and again, and um, yeah, for me, I'm still 
blown away by what the Beatles did. And when I hear, like these days, you can kind of dig up isolated tracks and like you can hear, like, for example, you know, Ringo's isolated drums from Come Together. Yeah. And it's just like, man, that is that just sounds incredible. Like, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't care what anybody says uh, that, you know, some people go, yeah, Ringo was lucky to be in the Beatles. Well, you know, you, you listen to the drums that come together and yeah. I'd say, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Um, I had Hamish Stewart on the podcast oh, it was a while ago now. But, yeah, yeah we, we spent a fair bit of time talking about Ringo and and, and the Beatles and, and how he played and, yeah, he, yeah, he's something else. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Hamish is like Ringo. He's a lefty that plays yeah, that's right. uh, yep. right-handed. That's yeah, right. So, uh, yep. yeah, there's, a, there's some similarities there. I don't know if I'll have to check whether Hamish starts his fills with his left hand, though. I've, I have to because I, uh, I believe that's what Ringo did, that he starts. Yeah. He starts all of his fills with his left hand. But, yeah, so, you know, doing those shows for me, um, some people go, aren't you sick of learning and, you know, working out Beatles songs? And I'm like, no. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's still into it. That's cool. So how, yeah. how do you approach that? Like are you, um, are you trying to play note for note? Or, or, uh, no, I'm I'm back to my Indian uh, raga concept. Yeah, of, cool. Awesome. I, I try to think of it like um, I try to get as in the spirit and in the feeling and in the sound and in the pocket as I can. But uh, the one thing I realise is that uh, when you listen to the Beatles, uh, verse two isn't the same as verse one and verse three isn't the same as verse one and two, like, they, they don't do things identically. Mm. So, yeah, I've never been a real um, sort of expert at mimicking. Uh, what I've, I think my forte is is trying to capture the spirit and the feeling. Gotcha. So, yeah, like, you know, for, for some, some people would go, wow, you, you've, you know, you're, you've nailed that note for note. And, but I know within my own heart I'm not. I'm trying to kind of go with the feeling of it. Mm. And that you know that if if they would have done another take, it wouldn't have been exactly the same. So yeah, I'm kind of I've got a little bit of leeway, yeah. but I'm, re- I'm I'm really trying to capture uh, the kind of attitude of it. So from a musical director's point of view, then when when you've been musical director of those shows, how are you? Um, uh, communicating with the other guys in the band in regards to what parts you want them to play. Are you trying to? Do you uh, like as an MD? Is is that your role to do that, or have you already kind of done that by selecting those musicians to play? You know what you're going to get from those guys. Yeah, look, yeah. A, a, um, a little. I think that the what you said, the latter, um, for me is. Um, I'm a big believer in. Um, that you know, you got to let your wild horses run free. So mm-hmm. for me, um, it's a thing about trying to kind of find a you know a, a group of people that are you know sympathetic to each other and sympathetic to the material. So um, you don't have to be trying to you know move them away from what they would naturally do. Yeah. Uh, but then there are sometimes you know that you would say that there are kind of you know 
um, things of taste and whatever style where occasionally, I, yeah, I might find that I might say to somebody, um, yeah, could, you know, could we try this or could we try that? But I try not to be uh, kind of uh, dogmatic about um, music. I, I try to kind of, you know, say, okay, yeah, could we give this a try and, you know, what do you think? You know, yeah. I, I yep. tend to be that I don't want it to be that I'm like, you know, uh, you know, somebody that sort of uh, like, I don't know, you know, domineering or overbearing with it. I, you. I, you know, I, I want it to be, hey, guys, you know, what, what does everybody think about this? You know, um, so it's a collective and, and collectively that we proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, when we're doing the um, – you know, uh, a lot of the songs, one of the classic things with the Beatles songs is uh, what tempo do you do it, do it at? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> you know, cause, you know if, if you listen to each verse of the song, it's a different tempo. Yeah, and, yeah. and so uh, that sort of becomes a bit of a challenge for, you know, rhythm sections that they kind of go, oh, holy shit, like, you know, like, I don't know, like a song like Strawberry Fields, it's got, you know, or, or uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, like, Every single verse is a different tempo, so that can be a thing of uh, okay, what are we going to do with this one, guys? Or you know, how are we going to approach this? So, do you do you let Hamish decide that? Then do you let him look kind of uh, yeah, look, cha- cha- uh, channel Ringo and or, or, or yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I would say yeah, and then I, uh, I would say if there's something that I think is you know whatever. Um, um, sufficiently important for me to uh, raise an issue, mm-hmm. then then I would. But a lot of the times, I'm not trying to be a stickler that would go. You yep. have to do it exactly like Ringo. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm. I'm again. I'm trying to think of. Are we vibing? Are we really capturing the vibe? Yep. Uh, if, if we are, you know, I guess you know, quite often as well. You know, one of the challenges with the Beatles is that quite often um, the drums have been double tracked. And that they might be, you know, two or three percussion parts. So we're trying to uh, um, sort of out of that condense it down into what one person can do when there's, you know, no percussion. So we're not going to get it to sound exactly the same. So yeah, I'm I'm not a sort of stickler to go. Yeah, um, Hamish, listen to the Phil at Bar Three. You know, we mm-hmm. you know we've got to get that. Where it's this, you know, let's say, I don't know, the setup of a song, you know, for example, I'd say, yeah, you know, um, you know, um, I'm, I might say, okay, what do you think? So, for example, I'm thinking of an example is um, Lady Madonna. Um, it's basically brushes mm-hmm. and it's a, uh, I think take one was brushes and then take two is, with, is sticks. So it's kind of like, okay, Hamish, what do you think we should do? So that for me would be more a discussion and um, rather than me saying this is the way you got to do it. Yeah. Let the, the let the wild horses run free. Yeah. Let let yeah, get get the people that are good and let them do their thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You um were a part of the band uh when Tower of Power came to town. Yeah, Larry Braggs and and uh, David Garibaldi. Yeah, and um, I uh, interviewed Victor Rounds, and we yeah. talked about this because you yeah. know I, I'm I'm a massive 
David Garibaldi fan. Love him. Yeah, me Fantastic. too. Yeah. Studied his books. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, what was that like, man? Like, um, were you kind of into that Oakland funk? Oh, yeah. Be, you know, you know, I mean, beforehand. And, again, you know, yeah, um, I guess, I guess, because um, Victor, um, Victor put the band together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, there's been a few times in my life where I've been, um, got the honour to play with, you know, uh, some of my, you know, all-time you know, heroes. And so for, for Victor to ask me to do that, uh, I just felt so honoured and humbled. And um, it was an incredible experience. Like uh, David Garibaldi uh, was the consummate professional. Yeah. Um, like we rehearsed at the uh, Bridge Hotel. I'm not sure if Victor told you this he story. Did, yeah. uh, look, we, you know, we, we were booked fr- from 10 till late. There was no... You know, it, it was just 10 a.m. till late. So I got there at quarter to 10 and I was the first of the Aussies to arrive and David Garibaldi was already set up. He had his drums set up. He, he had a, um, a thermos of coffee and he was reading the paper waiting for the, for the rest of us to arrive. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was the first there at quarter to 10 and people kind of, you know, straggled in like, you know, 10, 10, 5 past 10, 10 past 10 or whatever. And I could tell yeah, uh, he was a little bit surprised at the um, <laughs> yeah, uh, lack of, of strict punctuality, you know. Yeah. He obviously had arrived there at 9am ready to, you know, ready for a 10 o'clock downbeat kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and anyway, we we ran through till, uh, you know, roughly 8pm. And then David said, great, now let's run the set. Yeah, and all the, all the other Aussie horn players were like, "Oh, dude, I've blown my chops. I can't play anymore." You know? <laughs> and he like he he gave them a bit of a roasting. Yeah. Um but he, he what he was also brilliant at is that he was really a stickler on getting the correct phrasing, and so he would say, "Okay, horns, uh, let me hear you play your part at half time. Here we go: one, yeah. two, three four and they'd play and he'd go no 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 here's the phrasing and he'd do the you know the phrasing short and he was really keen on there's got to be more air it's staccato you guys it's you know you're hanging on for too long it's got to be short and it's got to you know a short note is short an accented note is accented a long note is long you know not no blurring of that yeah, obviously they've lived a lifetime with the Tower yeah. of Power Horn section. So <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was demanding, you know, he was pushing them. But yeah. what he would do, so he'd do, okay, you know, let, let me hear it at half time. Now let's do it at tempo. And he'd go, okay. But uh, other than that detail, I love what you're doing, dude. So he, he'd really hone in on stuff. But then it wouldn't just be that he would nitpick you. He would then really give you some praise. So it was a really great vibe um, to get it, you know, you know, analysed and, um, you know, uh, fortunately for me, he, he never asked me to play the phrase. So he, <laughs> he must have been happy. Yeah. Uh, he must have been happy with what I was doing, which, again, was a big honour. You know, it's like, fuck, man. Yeah. And then, you know, I've stayed in contact with uh, with uh, Dave, so 
uh, we've um, yeah, that's something that um, yeah, kind of who knows um, again what what you know. I guess yeah, for me, I'm I'm not. Some people are real experts at maintaining social contact and whatever, and and keeping that side of things going. But I I'm a bit more gentle about it. But yeah, when I meet meet someone like that, yeah. I, I stay in contact and you know send them a, uh, an email every now and again. And yeah. you know you never know what things might lead to. So yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, but yeah, it was a great experience, and um, yeah, thank you, Victor, for tipping me into that one. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, just quickly on that. So, how did you approach uh, your guitar parts on that? Did you take the albums away, and was that a case of trying to play sort of you know note for note, or you know, or, or um, again, no, uh, like you know, phrase uh, for phrase, or you just yeah. you just did it your way? Look, I uh, would learn the overall shape and the probably the opening phrase, maybe some key phrases and the closing phrase. Yep. So I, I would have the general shape of a solo, but I would not mimic um, a solo. And I tend to be that I I'm improvise um, every night. I do it slightly different. Yep. It, it, I've got, I might have a, a you know, a, a plan of the overall arc of it. Understand. But um, it, I'll, I'll be flying by the seat of my pants, at, 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 you know, the, you know, for whatever, 50, 60, 70% of it, who knows what I might do. Yeah. And the, the guys seem to be cool with that. Like uh, there was never any mention of, you know, no one ever said, you know, maybe you should stick a bit closer to the original solo, you know. Um, so, yeah, so for me it would be, you know, a thing of um, learning um like obviously with power of power, like for me, the key thing is really trying to be totally in the pocket with uh, Dave. And, you know that that's that that was priority number one. Just like uh, lock in with that because that that's where the groove is, and I don't want to be uh, crossing paths with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how but did yeah, you- he, he? He obviously um, he really dug uh, like it was uh, Clayton Dolly was the keyboard player and. Uh, I think that, that both he and Larry, like, because I, I can remember a couple of times Larry said, um, um, you know, he might have said something like, you know, that that's not really um, how we usually do it. And Dave would say, like, man, these guys, their group's incredible. Let's, go. you know, so, yeah. Stay with we, that. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, so, you know, kind of getting that from Dave was like, thanks, thanks, brother. Yeah. So how did you approach um, your sound then? Was that, was was that a little bit more trying to get that particular guitar tone and, and sound, or no, no, that's I, cool. You know, I, yeah, I, I just kind of, um, I, I, I would wouldn't say I even thought about trying to copy those sounds. Whereas with the Beatles shows, I am very okay. aware of trying to get those sounds. Yeah, but with the, uh, you know, I, I would be in the ballpark. So yep. you know, I mean, I'm not a really, you know sort of high gain um, kind of, you know, player. So, yeah, I, I'm sort of in the ballpark of what there is on those records anyway. Um, but I, I wasn't particularly thinking, yeah, I, I really need to nail that sound. And there wasn't any, no one that ever said anything about the sound either, so I, I take it they were happy. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. 
Do you play any other instruments apart from guitar? Not really. I, no. I you know, occasionally play a bit of bass, bit of bass and yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, uh, I've got a, a, I own a mandolin and I own a ukulele, but I, I wouldn't say that I can play them. You know, mm. uh, occasionally I've kind of uh, had to do like a, you know, a session where I need to do something. But yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself anything. I'm a guitarist. I sing, you know, a little bit of backing vocals. Mm-hmm. I play really basic keyboard, um, you know, kind of like I type. But, yeah, I've been fortunate that people have been kind of, uh, you know, tr- you know, employing me as a guitarist and that I've been really lucky to work with, you know, so many great singers uh, over the years. And I guess what I've always just tried to do is I just try to play the song. I don't, I've, I've never really tried to be the star of the show. I just try to do my best to support the singer and to support everybody else that's playing the song and do what I can to propel the groove and to propel the song. Is there any instruments you wish you could play? Or Look, uh, I wish I was a better keyboard player. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that would certainly have been handy over the years. I've, uh, have, I've been offered a couple of gigs over the years where if I could have played keyboards... That it was a sort of places where people were looking for someone who could play guitar and keyboards, okay. and I had to say no to the, those gigs. But um, yeah, so um, that that would be my only thing. Yeah, a bit more keyboards would have been handy. Mm. Has there been any situations where you've been offered a gig but you haven't been able to do it, um, and and that you've had <laughs> regret? For, oh, for whatever look, yeah. reason, uh, you know, the ones look, the ones that got away type thing, you know. Look, the ones that got away, look, yeah. um, uh, I would say, uh, you know, just speaking about that one about um, being asked to play keyboards and guitar, yep. there used to be a show um, called Good News Week, which yep. was Paul McDermott. Yeah, and, I remember. Um, they, um, they just had one musician uh, that was um, kind of an MD, and that they would get guest musicians depending on who the artist was that was on that week. It was it was filmed once a week on yep. a Saturday, and and I did it um, a handful of times, and I got on well with the producer of the show, and uh, you know I always try to do my best to be you know professional, courteous, well dressed, my gear works, all the all the you know regular things that um, that you know need to be taken care of. And so um, I got a call. For, I can't remember the lady's name now. Um, I got a call from the producer and she said, um, our MD is leaving and um, we w- we'd like to offer you the gig. Uh, you do play keyboards, don't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, uh, not well enough. Um, uh-huh. and, and I was kind of like, I've had this in, in the past where um, Given enough notice, I would just work yep. around the clock to get a job done. But it was like uh, the third a- first artist they had on, I can't remember who it was now, but it was like a heavy keyboard gig and I'm like, nah, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'd, I'd embarrass myself on national TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a place for it. But, yeah, so that was that was one. Um, look, um uh, I've, yeah, I, I have been offered a few gigs over the years that um, I've said no to. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I've. I'm not someone that really 
uh, is a person that carries regrets. I tra- yep. I tra- tend to be that yeah, it just wasn't suitable for me at the time, and yep. um, move on. Move on. Yep. Yeah. That's cool. Um, you mentioned, you know, you like to be sort of you know well dressed and that kind of thing. You you wear like a pork pie type sort of hat, yeah, style hat, and it seems to have been your thing f- for years. Yeah. And and every band photo that I've seen of you, you were in that hat. So, can you um can you explain how you ended up with that type of hat and and um if, if there's a story behind that? Maybe there's not. Maybe there's not at all. <laughs> it's a, it's a WHS issue that people are getting glared out by my ball. <laughs> <laughs> and and people, the, the lighting guy would say, "Could you cover up your head?" Oh, mate. mate. Yeah, that's right. We've got to move the spotlight. Yeah. Off, off behind you or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, what, what I find now um, <laughs> in, in the um, now that I'm follically challenged um, <laughs> is uh, that I I feel the cold and I feel the heat, and okay. so it's a cover up to, to kind okay. of. <laughs> no, there's no real story to it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Uh, uh, I, I keep threatening um, to my wife and daughter that yeah, um, I'm just going to you know. Shave my head, get some piercings, and yeah, you know, get muscles and tats. <laughs> and so we'll do it. Just get on with it. Stop talking yeah, about stop it. Talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a you problem now, not ours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit earlier, I asked you to to choose a song. You know, one song that's had the biggest impact on you, um, and then we'll, um, if you can, in a second, tell us what that song is, and and. Um, why you chose that song, and I think based on some of the you know the stories you've told early on, I think people kind of make sense of it. And um, after you've done that, we'll have a bit of a listen, and then I'll fade it out, and then we can have a bit of a chat about it. So, what's the song? Ah, oh, so yeah, we're talking all on the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix. Do you want me to give it a little bit of a story? Yeah, give it a bit of a story and then we'll then we'll have a bit of a play. Yeah, look, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, I saw uh, on TV uh, Jimmy doing Wild Thing uh, and I, I bought his first couple of singles, um, um, you yeah, know, Hey Joe and uh, Stone Free. And then uh, All Along the Watchtower came out and I remember just, like kind of hearing it and just uh, being, yeah, just so blown away by uh, what the electric guitar was doing and then uh, kind of, you know, that it's solo after solo and each one of them just goes almost out like to another universe. And um, still to this day you can go on YouTube and hear his guitar isolated. Still to this day I'm like, I don't know how he did how he does yeah, that. It's right. like absolutely amazing. Yeah. Did he uh, did he play guitar and sing at the same time in the studio? Do you look, know? I don't know exactly how that song was tracked. Mm-hmm. One of the, the things that's sort of um, a little bit kind of funny, and, and this has happened to me with a few songs. The beginning of the song as a kid, I always thought it started on beat one. So it goes one, two, mm. three, four, da 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 da. Yeah. Uh, that's how we always used to play it, that, you know, the, the first beat of the guitar is on beat one. But yeah. I realise now. It's that, not. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So um, it's interesting the things, but uh, I don't know exactly uh, 
what the order was, but I'm assuming that they would have tracked it uh, with him singing. Uh, and then I'm not exactly sure what, you know, what parts of it were overdubbed or, you know, because by that stage I'm not certain if it was done on either, I've got a feeling it might have been either eight or, or yeah, maybe it was eight track. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing it was eight track, but it might have only been a four track. Um, I, I would really have to look that up, not certain, but um, as you can imagine, if in those days, you know, if you're talking about either four or even eight track, you don't have a huge amount of tracks to do overdubs. So it's it's they probably would do the the drums would have all just been one track, you know, bass, um, acoustic guitar, you know, a couple more tracks, Hendrix's electric guitar, then there's uh, his vocals. So it would pretty quickly chew up the eight tracks. So I've got a feeling. Most of what you hear was done uh, as the bed track, and then I don't know if the guitar is over. I'd have to look that up. I'm not certain. Yeah, I've just pulled up the Wikipedia. Um, I mean, the song that yeah, for people that people that don't know, the song was written by and originally performed by Bob Dylan. So um, it says here Kramer and. Chase Chandler mixed the first version of All Along the Watchtower on January 26th, but Hendrix was quickly dissatisfied with the result and went on recording and overdubbing guitar parts during June, July, and August at the Record Plant Studio in New York. Engineer. What year is it? Uh, Sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. Yeah, I think that would be uh, eight or sixteen track. Yeah, uh, engineer Tony Bongiovi. Pardon me if I said that wrong. Has described Hendrix becoming increasingly dissatisfied as the song progressed, overdubbing more and more guitar parts, moving the master tape from a four-track to a twelve-track to a sixteen-track machine. There you go. Bon Jovi record recording these new ideas meant he would have to erase something. In the weeks prior to the mixing, we had already recorded a number of overdubs, wiping track after track. That's interesting, eh? Wow. And then Hendrix kept saying, I think I hear it a little bit differently. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, so, well, I guess that tells you that that final guitar solo, I would say that definitely is an overdub. An overdub, right. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's, yeah. have, let's have a listen. Yeah. 
we were talking a bit earlier a bit about um, Mitch Mitchell's drumming. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of zoning in there and listening, trying to <laughs> hear any more than than two or three bars where he's playing the same thing, but he's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah. So, now, what did you have sort of what what was what was the uh, what was the next twelve months going to be, Paul? Did you have an idea of what was going to happen before this next sort of? I know we touched a little bit on the COVID thing at the start, but um, you know, just sort of winding this out now. Um, yeah, what, look, what's what's the future, man? What's look as far as gigging um, the the second half of this year? Um, I've got a tour with. Uh, John Waters, John Waters and Steve yeah. Arrieta doing the John Lennon songbook. Yep. Um, I'm hoping that uh, that um, still stays in place. Yep. Uh, Leo's talking about uh, doing a tour in February next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as that, the Beatles shows, they're not talking about doing anything till the end of next year. So um, I've got a couple of things kind of the, uh, just in the pipeline that are, are just in the discussion stage, but uh, those are the kind of things that I've got that are sort of more concrete. Uh, so, yeah, um, and then I, I kind of do, you know, various other bits and pieces of, I, like there's a few other people that I play with that I should probably mention as well. Like uh, I play with Rick Malik, um, uh Leanne Paris, uh, they're, you know, to kind of lesser known but still really great artists. Um, I, I do occasional gigs kind of with other people, but mm. um, yeah, uh, at the moment, gigs uh, here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> like, who knows? Yeah. All right, Paul, man, thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure, Steve. Nice to chat with you, and hopefully, uh, my ramblings no. can be edited down to make no. some sense. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. The only thing I edit, and I say this all the time, is me. I cut oh. cut a lot of me out, right. me dribbling. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, thanks for putting up with me for that first forty five minutes while we worked oh, no out worries. the the technical technical yeah. thing. And um, yeah, I hope soon we can uh, catch up face to face and have a yarn, and I come watch you play. And yeah, man, that'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the invitation to be on your great show. Right? Oh man, it's, honestly, it's my pleasure, and I'm I'm honoured. Really honoured to have you on here. Really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Much appreciated. All right, Paul. All right. Take, Take it care. easy, man. All right. Good see you. Thank you. Cheers.